Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Prince Harry's long-awaited memoir has an official title. A new King Charles biography hits bookstores and we talk with the author. And controversy erupts around the upcoming season of The Crown before it even hits the airwaves. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's chief royal correspondent. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, a royal watcher based in the U.S. And this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, Jack. Hello, listeners. And hello to the fact checkers and proofreaders working round the clock on Prince Harry's long-awaited memoir, which now has a title and an official publication date. Yes, Spare will land on the slightly delayed date of January 10, 2023. And it has already created a huge amount of speculation about whether it's going to be critical of the monarchy. Some commentators have gone as far as saying that Harry and Meghan should be stripped of their titles and Harry shouldn't release it at all. Now, the new press release released by Random House says that Prince Harry will share for the very first time in this book the definitive account of the experiences, adventures, losses, and life lessons that have helped shape him. And we're also going to get a lot of Diana in the book, it seems, because the publisher said in their statement that um, billions wondered what the princess must be thinking and feeling at the point she was laid to rest and how their lives would play out from that point. So clearly she is going to be a big part of this book. And in a statement accompanying the announcement, Harry gave insight into his approach, saying, I'm writing this not as the prince I was born, but as the man I have become. Jack, let's discuss this book. Let's discuss everything about what we know so far. Um, First of all, let's remember the book was originally supposed to drop autumn 2022. Kind of vague, but, you know, we thought right about now it would be coming out. What do you make of this new pub date? I think that there are two ways to view this. One is that perhaps they actually just wanted to produce some more content for it because the Queen obviously passed away in September and that is a massive part of Harry's story. I also think that there's probably a lot that he might well want to at some point talk about from that period. I think it was a very difficult period for him and a very strained period for royal relations in spite of all the public show of unity. Um, but the other thing as well is it's, it was really obvious that the publication date originally set was going to be timed for that big Christmas rush when a lot of books get bought as presents for people. And they may well just have felt that it looked a little bit opportunistic in the aftermath of the Queen's death to release it at that kind of time. So by just kicking it forward slightly into January, they can't be accused of kind of trying to cash in and profit from the book. I think Harry is going to want this to be the narrative to be that he is finally telling his true story in his own words after all the newspaper articles written about him. You know, something that crossed my mind, Jack, is it's coming out at the time of year when there is a major, major interest in self-help 
and memoirs of transformation. Uh, I'm not sure if you use the phrase new year, new you on your side of the pond, but it's a very common thing to say at the new year here in the U.S., you know, as people are making their resolutions, as people are reinventing themselves and so on. So I thought, oh, this book really seems timed for that, especially with Harry saying, I am writing this not as the prince I was born, but as the man I have become. When I hear that language, when I hear the January release date, I think new year, new you. Um, but the other thing I think about is all of the buzz. You know, a lot of people who are critical of Harry and Meghan have said, now he has to rewrite all of the book. Now that the queen is dead, he probably has a lot of regrets about writing too many harsh things about the royal family. Now he has to go back and soften things up. Now he can't upset his dad because his dad is the monarch at this point. What do you think about those speculations, Jack? I think from calling the book Spare, it's clearly going to be about his standing and status within the royal family. So this is that classic dynamic that every generation of the royal family is meant to have an heir who will succeed to the throne and a spare who is there just in case um, tragedy befalls the royal family and the heir cannot take the throne either through death or through abdication. Um, and the last time this was needed, actually, that was what led ultimately to the Queen becoming our monarch, was her uncle Edward VIII abdicated, her father became king. And that's why she became a direct heir to the throne. So what this book is going to be about is the, I think there is going to be a narrative about the emotional indifference and coldness of the monarchy as an institution and how that affected him when he was growing up. But also calling it spare gives a strong indication that a lot of it is going to be about his position in relation to William, who's the heir. Um, and William is somebody who we actually heard very little about during the Oprah Winfrey interview. So this makes me think that we're going to get into some of that rift, which actually Harry has mentioned before, but given almost no detail on publicly. Yeah, I have to say I was really taken aback when I saw the title of the book, Spare. It's kind of like, I, I'm not sure if this is quite a fair comparison, but it's kind of like, if Mariah Carey were to write a book and to call it Diva, which, you know, she owns <laughs> at this point and she uh, enjoys being a diva, as we heard when she was on the Archetypes podcast, she completely owns the title Diva now. But for a long time, it was just something that she was kind of referred to in the press, kind of, you know, dismissively yeah. or kind of as an accusation. And I think that, you know, Harry, that's what Spare has been for him his whole life, kind of like a dismissive term, like, you know, you're just here just in case. You're not a priority around here. And for him to own that and to say, you know what, that is the title of this book and I am not running away from it. And also with that steely gaze he has on his face on the book cover, it's a it's an extreme close up and the words spare mm. right across his face. Um, I really think that there's something intense and uh, very serious that we're going to be reading here. Yes, I'm not sure that Harry enjoys being the spare as much as Mariah enjoyed being a diva. Yes, um, but he he may he may own the, own the word, um, and yeah, absolutely. I think that it's a it's a kind of double edged sword because arguably, you know, being the spare is what allowed Harry to serve in Afghanistan on the front line. 
you know, the air doesn't get to serve on the front line. So we might get actually like a slight positive take on it from that point of view, because I think from what the publicity material indicates, it does sound that we are going to get some more insight into Harry's experiences in the military. Um, so that will be interesting and no doubt really dramatic. I think Harry has said in his uh, mental health docuseries, The Me You Can't See, that there were only something like three times when he felt truly out of control. And one of those was in an Apache attack helicopter. So we may well get to hear that story of this incredibly emotionally intense experience on the front line. Um, obviously we've said Diana is going to be a part of it and the publicity material again mentions the story starting with the two brothers walking behind Diana's coffin and then charts Harry's journey from there so we're going to get you know his experiences of the aftermath of Princess Diana's death but then the other big question from the media is what's he going to say about Camilla Um, obviously Mm. at some point Camilla then no doubt he might well have been aware of her perhaps but at some point she formally entered his life as his father's kind of official girlfriend and later wife so he might have quite a lot to say about that whole experience and then throw in there the fact that he you know he's got to tell the story of his life after Megan came along and we all know what he thinks and feels about that because he said a lot of it already so I think there are there are definitely going to be parts of this book that make for really uncomfortable reading for the palace and the monarchy whether he get how much he gets into the detail with actual family members i think we cannot possibly know until it comes out but i think it would be genuinely really difficult for him to write it without expressing something of how he actually feels because that's the way he sees it yeah yeah and his account is his account and you know there there are folks out there who are going to say oh uh, what does he know of his parents' marriage? What does he know of this or that? And um, it's true. He he was not probably sitting in the bedroom while his parents were having heart-to-heart fights or conversations, but he does know how it affected him. He does know how it feels to, you know, read in the press those transcripts of Tampon Gate between Camilla and his dad. He does know how it feels to have his family ridiculed and made fun of. He does know what it feels like to be in the public eye. So, you know, his accounts of what happened are true to his experience and his feelings. And even though we don't know yet exactly what he writes in the book, I trust that he is going to be, along with his ghostwriter, writing from the heart and writing from his own, uh, you know, feelings, his own um, ups and downs, everything that he went through. Yeah. And the other really interesting thing I think about the title is that it makes me wonder whether he's going to get into some of the conflict and rift between him and William pre-Megan. So um, there was one book that was uh, written, uh, Battle of Brothers, by uh, Robert Lacey. It had this section in it talking about a couple of the scandals from Harry's teenage years that it suggested Harry felt William should have shared the blame for, but that he was basically strung out, hung out to dry, and, you know, thrown to the wolves while William was allowed to retain his picture-perfect image in order to protect the monarchy. So one example given is Harry famously wore to a, um, a, a colonials and natives fancy dress party a Nazi uniform as a costume. Um, so Harry got huge amounts of criticism in the media. It was on the front page of The Sun. Um, but William was there when he rented the uniform. 
and uh, William took none of the criticism, whereas, uh, you know, this is obviously to this day, it's one of the biggest scandals that Harry's ever faced. And, you know, there are other examples, I think, of situations where Harry felt that he he was thrown to the wolves, thrown to the media, and William was protected for the sake of the reputation of the institution. So I think that certainly there will at points have been a desire to tell that story, whether that has survived into the final output that we're going to see published will be really interesting to see. Yeah, I'll be curious if that's in there. I mean, and and for anybody who wonders if that dynamic has continued, <laughs> Megan has made it clear when she sat down with Oprah, you know, that, that dynamic has continued through what they decide to put out about Kate versus her, you know. Um, you know, the press saying that Megan made Kate cry and, you know, the palace saying, we're just going to ignore that. We're going to do everything we can to make Kate look good, to make Kate look like a victim. And they do the same with Wills. And Megan came forward and Harry backed her up saying, no, that's not how it happened. But Harry and Megan have continually been thrown under the bus. So I, I'm sure there must be some anger about that. There certainly was pain over it when they talked with Oprah. So I hope that's in the book. I, I hope they, you know, reveal more of those stories. I hope they defend themselves because they really are treated quite badly by the tabloid press. And I hope Harry takes this chance to defend himself, not just to share his feelings and his story, but to stand in his own truth and not just take every assault that's been thrown at him and Megan. Mm, interesting yeah and there's also the question as well of whether the royal family will be able to actually engage with some of what he's saying in a constructive way or whether they will simply get defensive about it because obviously harry is the spare of his generation but every generation has a spare so you know uh, george is the heir charlotte is the spare mm-hmm. um and so that yeah william potentially could actually if he can find a way to put his personal feelings to one side and try to engage with Harry's actual experiences, there might also be lessons for the generation that comes next. Um, But what do you think, Kristen? I mean, how do you think the royals will react to this, first of all, privately, and second of all, publicly? Well, we already know that Charles has a bit of a temper, and Katie Nichols from Vanity Fair has suggested, as we said in this podcast, that uh, depending on what's in the book, that Charles may continue to withhold those titles from Lilibet and Archie. And if Charles does that, that that will certainly come across as petty. He already is coming across as petty right now by not giving those titles, which are rightfully his grandchildren's titles. But I also wonder if some people have short memories and are forgetting that Charles did his own tell-all with uh, Jonathan Mm. Dimbledee back in the day. So if Charles is going to get upset about it and if the public is going to get upset and say, Harry's saying things he shouldn't say, Harry's trying to air the family's dirty laundry, let's not forget Charles did that decades ago. He already has done that. He already spoke about how harsh his father was, how emotionally distant his mother was, how unloving, how torturous his days in school were. So, you know, I really can't say, Charles, if you're going to be angry and petty, I don't really know, Charles, if you have the right to take that out, though, on Harry, because you did it yourself, Charles. I know you're listening, Charles. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I actually think it's possible that that book could get a mention in Harry's memoir because Harry's, uh, when he went on the Armchair Expert podcast in May 2021, spoke about um, what he described as genetic pain. Mm-hmm. And he said that some of what he's experiencing is a product of Charles passing on the kind of trauma of his own royal upbringing. And obviously, yeah, so that book is the kind of, you know, the how-to guide to how Charles wound, wound up being the way he is and all of the trauma that he went through. It's got, like, memories from fairly early childhood, really. Philip making him cry at the dinner table mm-hmm. when he was a boy. Yeah, the Him turning uh, primarily for his source of emotional comfort and support to his nanny rather than the queen because he was always guaranteed a hug when he was in the nursery. You know, it's all in there, laid out in great detail. It's an absolute doorstep, doorstop of a book. And if you ever need to keep your sofa propped up, then it will do the job comfortably. So there's <laughs> plenty to work with. Um, and yeah, I reckon that it might actually get a direct reference or at the very least material pulled out of that book may wind up being referenced in Harry's as a a way to kind of for Harry to explain to himself and the reader how he thinks this situation has developed. I am looking forward to reading this book and getting a lot of our questions answered and probably coming up with new questions after reading it but I guess we'll just have to be patient until January 10th. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. But before we do, a reminder to rate us and review us in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. When we're back, we talk with the author of a new book on King Charles. So stay with us. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our special guest, Christopher Anderson. Christopher is the author of several best-selling books on the royal family, including Brothers and Wives, uh, The Inside the Private Lives of William, Kate, Harry and Meghan, and Game of Crowns, Elizabeth, Camilla, Kate and the Throne. And he's here today to talk with us about his newest book, The King, The Life of Charles III. Christopher, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Christopher, we are so excited to have you here with us today. 
and um, to talk about your book, which has many revelations about King Charles. You had a lot of sources you talked with here. Let's start off with Charles's childhood. He himself has spoken about his unhappiness as a schoolboy, and we even alluded to some of that in today's episode. But you tell us even more than Charles himself has said in the past. Can can you tell us about some of the details you uncovered? Well, you know, it's it, first of all, I have to preface this by saying uh, this book is five years in the making. I mean, uh, I, you know, uh, finished the book in about uh, 2020 and been updating it ever since. Uh, and I've been covering the royal family for, for uh, 49 years. Um, ran People Magazine's uh, uh, coverage in the 70s and 80s of the royals. But yes, his uh, Charles's childhood is tragic in a way, you know, really heartbreaking in that uh, from the beginning, he was an abandoned and lonely little boy. You know, uh, he was, he saw his parents twice a day for 15 minutes. He brought in by his nanny, Mabel Anderson, to see, to see them at nine o'clock in the morning and just before dinner at six. Other than that, almost no contact with his mother. That's that really touching um, photograph from years ago when, when Queen Elizabeth gets back from her first tour of the Commonwealth and she's been gone for months and and uh, he rushes up to hug her, but she actually kind of shoves him aside because she has dignitaries to greet. And when, he, when she finally does acknowledge him, she reaches down and shakes his hand like he was a 40-year-old man, you know. Um, that was the relationship. And, and Charles has described his mother as being cold and aloof and his father as being very harsh and bullying. And I think that really left a scar on him. Uh, not just, this was before he ever entered those schools, which were, which he described as pure torture and pure hell. Um, he was um, physically abused, emotionally abused, kicked in the head when he stored, snored at night by his fellow students, uh, berated and belittled. And viewed through today's lens, a lot of this would be uh, akin to hazing or uh, you know, kind of behavior that we would not, um, you know, being touched inappropriately, behavior that we would not tolerate today. It would be very, be very shocked about, but that went on in uh, the very best English boarding schools, um, certainly when in the 1950s and 60s. And of course, one of those boarding schools that he went to, Gordonstone, was um, particularly picked out by Prince Philip, I think, wasn't it? Because Philip went there himself and had, a, had uh, he loved it because he had had no structure in his life. So he liked the very strict structure and discipline of it. But Charles, obviously, a very different person to Philip. Absolutely. And I think that's what fascinates me about Charles. And, you know, he's always seen himself as a victim. I mean, Winston Churchill, by the way, when he saw little Charles at the age of three, he says he's young to think so much. I mean, even then, you know, I mean, the very intuitive Winston Churchill could see that this was going to be a special kit. And uh, where we could see Elizabeth, we knew who Elizabeth was. I I start off the book by saying she was this, you know, colossus uh, clutching her purse uh, astride eight decades and five generations. I mean, she knew who she was. But I, in a way, you know, uh, Charles has always been a work in progress. He's had to navigate all these very uh, strong emotions he has. Uh, he's he's very paradoxical in, in his, I mean, we, we see him as almost a more of a man of the 19th century than, than the 21st. And yet he, you know, he was one of the first people to really speak up about the environment and organic farming and and, uh, you know, urban planning, a lot of things that were kind of thought of as crackpot things. He used to talk about talking to his plants, you know, in the 1970s and got a lot of grief for that. But in fact, you know, we've all come to embrace a lot of this <laughs> thinking. So uh, he's a very complicated guy. And I think that makes him particularly fascinating as a monarch. 
he also is somebody who is famous for his temper. And, you know, mm. in recent weeks, we've seen some displays of that, you know, yelling at pens, for example, yes. that, aren't working, <laughs> that aren't working the way he wants them to work. But right. um, at least one case of his temper in your book, you say, involves him throwing something directly at Diana's head and, you know, doing other things that uh, I, I would say are violent. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Well, you know, his uh, one of his uh, former valet or valet, depending on how you want to pronounce it, uh, Ken Stronach, would talk to very great detail about how, uh, you know, uh, Charles would explode and, and, and violently and often. And uh, there was one scene in the book where, you know, he uh, Charles loses his cufflink. It goes down the sink and he gets so frustrated. He literally tears the sink off the wall. He did this on two occasions, I might add. Um, and uh, another instance where he grabbed uh, a servant by the neck and tried to strangle him. Uh, uh, this uh, instance that you mentioned where the, uh, he threw a boot jack, which uh, made of wood and, and iron, it, and narrowly missed Diana's head. I, but the funny thing is, you know, what I think is amazing is here he is 73 years old. I'm his age, by the way. And, uh, and he hasn't learned to control that temper. We could see it with the eyes of the world upon him, just as you said. I, I could not believe that he would have a hissy fit over the fact that his aide had not cleared the desk quickly enough when he was signing those papers in Scotland. You know, he, uh, he must have known the world was looking at him at this moment, and yet he still could not control that temper. And just moving on to uh, some of the other very interesting aspects of the book, you talk a lot about Charles and his relationship with Donald Trump, um, partly in the context of climate change and partly some other aspects, Trump's comments on Diana, which were quite distasteful. But ultimately, you say that Charles thought that Trump was a ghastly, awful man. Um, can you tell us more about that. I mean, that would you view that as kind of breaching royal neutrality protocols or what's your view? I think, well, the fact that he stood him up and wouldn't see him I was, was the best he could do, Charles, uh, you know, when, when, uh, during Trump's last visit. I think those comments that Trump made about Diana and dating Diana and, and this sort of thing uh, were so distasteful to William in particular that, uh, that Charles felt he had to, uh, you know, turn his back on, on Trump. But uh, let's face it, the, the neutrality, the, the the crown's neutrality has always been a thing in question. The famous black spider memos that uh, uh, Charles got in trouble for writing. And reminder to listeners, the black spider memos were letters and memorandums written by Charles to government officials and politicians. They were written in his messy script that resembled black spiders. Pretty much, he wrote 1,800 of them a year before they were found out. Um, you know, he's not going to be quiet. He's being, he's behaving himself now with this transition of prime ministers. But during those weekly meetings, I'm certain that the prime minister will get an earful. <laughs> you know, he's been going over the same red box, you know, famous red boxes of state that uh, the queen did. He knows uh, what's what and what's happening. And, uh, and he's going to express himself. Mm. In expressing himself, what kind of agenda do you think he's going to try to put forward? What kind of priorities do you think we're going to see coming out of the palace? Well, his first job is to uh, sell Britain on Camilla. 
And I realized that she's the public attitude has softened toward her a bit over the years. Just a um, bit, but not a lot. <laughs> uh, not a lot. Not a lot. I mean, as recently as uh, November of last year, there was a poll, a YouGov poll that showed that only 14 percent of uh, people in Great Britain were willing to accept her as queen. And and, you know, I do have uh, information in the book about the deal that was worked out, kind of a very subtle and unspoken deal that um, behind the scenes that resulted in the queen suddenly endorsing Camilla, I think something she had resisted doing for many, many years. And, um, you know, that, that again, that it was involved a kind of a quid quo pro. Oh, yeah. Explain that quid pro quo. Explain that to us. <laughs> we all love saying that. <laughs> yes. It's a tongue twister. Uh, well, you have a little context here. The queen... Uh, always detested Camilla. Uh, the Queen Mother particularly detested Camilla because she was throwing a wrench in the work. She was, not, you know, being, you know, be, because of Camilla, there was the, uh, the the monarchy was kind of brought to the to the brink of destruction. Uh, Charles would not give up Camilla, and as a result, well, we know what happened with all the scandals and whatnot. So when D Diana died, Camilla became was blamed by a, a lot of people for the situation that resulted in Diana's death. And she became, Camilla became the most hated woman in England, if not, you know, the world for a while there. And uh, it took eight years for Charles to finally convince everybody to accept Camilla as his wife, to convince the queen to allow him to marry Camilla. He had to jump through all those hoops, you may remember. He had to, he and Camilla had to get down on their knees before the Archbishop of uh, Canterbury and, and uh, beg for forgiveness for their uh, wanton and wicked ways. Um but uh, he promised he would never make Camilla queen, that she would be princess consort. I knew from the beginning, and I've written this in several books, that, that that would never happen, that he loves her too much to insult her in that way, and that he always intended to make Camilla queen. Um, he uh, lobbied uh, Queen Elizabeth for 17 years to make that happen, and she resisted it, not just because she disliked Camilla, because she kind of warmed up to her a bit, but because she knew the vast majority of people in the country would find it distasteful and it would be a problem for the monarchy. The only way that uh, Charles ever had any leverage uh, was uh, came about uh, earlier this year when suddenly Prince Andrew had to cough up $14 million in his Jeffrey uh, Epstein um, you know, sexual abuse uh, civil case, and he didn't have the money, and the queen viewing Andrew as her favorite child, as she always has, wanted to pay it, part of it. And uh, Charles could have spoken up. Charles was always very, had a very strong uh, opinion. You know, he was the person really responsible for, for getting Andrew drummed out of the family because of his activities in the Epstein affair. And, uh, you know, suddenly it was brought up behind the scenes that, yes, wouldn't this be the perfect time for the queen if she doesn't want Charles to speak up? Wouldn't this be the perfect time for the queen? to endorse Camilla fulsomely and finally. And that did happen. And everyone was taken aback and by surprise. And no no one more so than, than William and, and Harry, because, you know, they believed their father would honor that pledge, uh, basically, because, you know, had circumstances been different, their mother would have been queen. Now, do you want to say anything on the palace's response to that account in your book? Because obviously NBC News, you went on the Today Show and they reported that the palace had disputed it. So what, what can you tell us about that? Well, they dispute I mean, the mere fact that they responded at all, as I've said before, 
is an indication that one has struck a nerve, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but this is what, I, I wouldn't surprise me if they weren't even aware of it. You know, the spokesman for the palace have a knee-jerk reaction to anything that, uh, to everything. And uh, they're, they're not necessarily uh, aware of what's happening behind the scenes. Now, there's another aspect of the book that interested me, which is that you suggest that Kate Middleton um, actually sympathised with Meghan when she when Meghan was being criticised for visiting Uvalde after the uh, after the gun attack at school, um, and you report that Kate was actually actually having you know done something similar in Britain. Um, actually, thought that it was unfair that Meghan was accused of a PR stunt and understood why Meghan did it. Right. And I think, uh, obviously, um, Megan is terribly unpopular in Great Britain, more popular in the United States. And I think um, she's come in for legitimate criticism at times. And um, I can understand why people feel that she's um, caused huge problems for the monarchy and for Harry in particular. Uh, but in that particular instance, I think showing uh, some sympathy and solidarity with the people there was perfectly legitimate. No. And it's the kind of thing that uh, the, the irony here is that I think there is a sort of uh, there could have been a bond between uh, William, between uh, uh, Kate and um, Megan. But unfortunately, that that didn't happen. It's unfortunate that it didn't because it would certainly have helped Charles. Charles really needs all hands on deck. He needs people. Uh, he, he always wanted Harry and his bride and he supported Megan in the beginning, as you may recall, very strongly. One of them up there on that balcony and sharing in the royal duties, and uh, sadly that, that hasn't happened. So you don't then subscribe to the view that there has been any kind of royal rapprochement since the Queen died, and we saw, you know, Harry, Meghan, William, and Kate appearing together in public side by side. Oh no! As a matter of fact, when I saw, the, I think the, what happened at the funeral uh, said it all. I, they were very unhappy. They, they they appeared to be, for all intents and purposes, somewhat shunted aside. I know they. Uh, the four of them, uh, the Sussexes and the Cambridges, appeared together, but there was no <laughs> particular warmth uh, display between them. They kind of avoided each other. Um, no, I, I, I think that uh, they're at a very, very low point, but it's going to get much lower when Harry's book uh, comes out in January, because that's going to be explosive. And, I, and I don't, I'm sure that he's going to have to do a lot of it. I understand he's going back to... Great Britain uh, over the holidays to try these are the reports right now to try and explain his motivation, quote unquote, in writing uh, Spare, his book. But um, I, I don't see it working. And are there any other big revelations you're willing to share with us from your book, ones that might knock the socks off of our listeners? <laughs> well, there's a lot there. I mean, especially about, you know, he, he's such an enigma and such a kind of a complicated uh and uh, inconsistent person, if that makes any sense. Uh, I think the details of his, uh, one of the curious and interesting things involves the number of times he's cheated death, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, recently talked about, uh, revealed uh, that he, um, uh, when he was at uh, Cambridge, uh, Trinity College there, he was outside the library while on his bicycle and was struck by a bus and miraculously, he said, it's how he survived, he, he never knew. Um, had he not survived, it's interesting to think that Andrew would be, would be king. You know, and also this happened uh, when he was um, training for the IRAF, his, uh, 
the strings of his parachute and his first parachute jump got tangled in his feet and he was turned upside down and he only managed to right himself the last minute again a very very close call um he narrowly narrowly and again andrew would have become king at that time um he narrowly missed being killed in that avalanche that killed hugh uh, Lindsay, his really great friend um and um Two weeks before Diana's death uh, in Mallorca, uh, he lost con- uh, control of his car and almost went over a cliff. Um, so it's, uh, yes, many times, and I'm sure there have been other occasions as well. I mean, on the polo field, he was injured so many times, he certainly could have been killed during that potentially, you know, deadly game as well. He survived and now he's the king. He's finally got his moment. Well, yes, and by the way, it, the, the uh, Camilla. Uh, well, there's an interesting story about the uh, accident that Camilla uh, had, a uh, car crash. I won't call it a hit and run quite, but they, the details are fascinating. That's also described in the book, and very harrowing. Ooh. Wow. You're talking about the one where she, the driver, suggested that she kind of saw Camilla running away up the hill, and she, Camilla didn't yeah. come over to say to speak to to speak to the driver at all. No, she contacted Charles's office immediately, not the police. And she sat with her hand with her, on the side of the road with her head in her hands, sobbing and terrified and shaking rather than going to see if the person in the car had been injured or killed. Yeah, so this was quite a dramatic. It was head on, as I recall, and I think took the wheel yeah. off Camilla's car and the other car wound up sideways in a ditch. Is that correct? Exactly. Could have been a, a catastrophe. Oh my God! But that's just that's just another just another nugget. There are a lot of things. I mean, people looked at the, the Queen in, in recent years, and 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 the affection she displayed toward Charles, you know, and and Camilla is part of the scene. It's amazing to me that that so many people have forgotten, or maybe we're never aware of the constant stream of scandals and controversies and problems and tragedies that have gone on in the royal family since as far back as I can remember. And again, I've been covering them for nearly 50 years. Um, I, I'm, just a little aside, personal aside, in 1977, I covered the uh, um, Silver Jubilee and um, in uh, the, marking the 25th anniversary of, of the Queen's reign. Uh, I was senior editor of People magazine then covering uh, handling all the coverage. And um, I remember I, we were somehow in the Royal, uh, we were at Westminster Abbey and we were just feet, from the family and the family came, Diana was not in the picture. Uh, and it really was a very waxworks collection. You know, they were, yes, the queen and, and the rest of them, it's wonderful to have seen them, but uh, it really took Diana, uh, this kind of larger than life figure who wasn't going to follow the rules to inject excitement into the family. And boy, did she ever, you know, because it's never been the same since. Well, Christopher Anderson, We are looking forward to reading all the other exciting stories in your book. Reminder, everyone, the book is called The King, The Life of King Charles III, Years in the Making. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christopher. Thank you. It was great. I enjoyed it. All right. We're going to take one more quick break. But before we do, a reminder to follow us on Twitter. Jack is at Jack underscore Royston. And I am at Kristen Meinzer. We always have royal updates there, as well as Jack's latest stories for Newsweek. He's always on the case. When we're back, actors and politicians take sides on the upcoming season of The Crown.
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hi everyone, we're back with one last story about The Crown and the controversy that has erupted around it, even though it is not even out yet. Can you say controversy one more time? Because it's such a fun <laughs> thing for Americans to hear. <laughs> controversy? Controversy. <laughs> well, because that's not how you pronounce it, you mean, or because it's... We say controversy, but I, say controversy. I, I love hearing you say that. Controversy. <laughs> Anywho, back to the story. Former UK Prime Minister John Major recently called the series a, quote, barrel load of nonsense and called for a boycott when it was reported that season five would include a fictionalized scene involving Charles pitching Major on a plan to get the Queen to abdicate. Yes, and we have also had, you know, British showbiz royalty in her own right, Dame Judi Dench writing a letter to the Times where she said the Crown should carry a disclaimer at the start of every episode. And she said, Sir John Major is not alone in his concerns that the latest series of the Crown will present an inaccurate and hurtful account of history. I fear that a significant number of viewers, particularly overseas, uh, guys, they're talking about you in America. <laughs> they take his version of history as being wholly true. She added, no one is a greater believer in artistic freedom than I, but this cannot go unchallenged. Now, current cast members of The Crown have pushed back against Dench and Major's assertions. Jonathan Price, who plays Prince Philip in the new season, told Deadline, the vast majority of people know it's a drama. They've been watching it for four seasons. In a separate interview, Leslie Manville, who plays Princess Margaret in the new season, said that given The Crown's focus on what goes on behind closed doors... The writers can only create an event, obviously. She added, I wouldn't be involved with something that I felt was crossing the line. I don't think the series does that at all. Yeah, I mean, look, it's impossible to make a show like this without fictionalizing some aspects of it because nobody knows what characters said to one another. But equally, the most damaging aspects of this season for the monarchy are, in all honesty, the bits that are true, you know, that Charles did cheat on Diana. Their relationship did disintegrate. You know, the, uh, the, doc the interview that Diana gave to the BBC is on record. It very closely echoes what she said to biographer Andrew Morton. Um, and it's, you know, it's all there in black and white predating the very existence of the crown. All the, you know, a yes. lot of these allegations date back to 1992, 94, 95. It's all there. It happened at the time. And it's also really clear that what happened at the time was that Charles went from in 1991 um, being loved by many people. 81% thought he would make a good king. And then he crashed really hard after the affair became public knowledge. Um, and his reputation has never reached those, 19, those 1980s levels um, in the years since. So people can protest as much as they want. They could put a disclaimer at the beginning of the show if they wanted. It wouldn't make the blindest bit of difference. 
Yeah. And speaking of a disclaimer, we just have to say that the current trailers that are out in the world actually do say fictional dramatization right there in the trailers. And if you go to the show's Twitter page, it says, inspired by real events, this fictionalized dramatization tells the story of Queen Elizabeth II and the political and personal events that shaped her reign. That is two uses of the word fictional right there. So I don't know why people are in such an uproar when, first of all, they are using that disclaimer. And second of all, Americans, I'm sorry, Dame Judi Dench, I love your acting, but don't underestimate your audience. We're not this stupid. We know over here in America, we're not all dum-dums. We know that we are watching not a documentary. This is clearly not a documentary. This has actors in it. And we have seen dramas before. We've seen historical dramas. And we know that things are not being said word for word on screen that were said behind closed doors. We know that. We know that. We're not dumb, Judy. Come on. Can I call you Judy? We're not dumb. (laughs) We know. And if there is anything you're unsure of, check Newsweek, because we will be doing lots of explainers, uh, unpacking all the different kind of extraordinary details of the series and comparing them to real life. But also, the other thing is this is fantastic publicity for the crown the crown should really have judy dench and john major on a retainer because it's all (laughs) over the british press debates about it on daytime tv the works and the one thing that i think is going to come across to the public is season five of the crown is coming out and it sounds really exciting because there's this big drama and controversy around it so if you want to have your own opinion i guess you're gonna have to watch it yes yes and you probably want to listen to our upcoming special episode. Jack, you and I, you and I have already seen this season of The Crown, and we are excited to talk about everything that happens in the season, compare it to what happened in real life. There is an embargo on when we are allowed to talk about the season, so we are not releasing an episode this week. We're going to wait until next week when the episodes actually drop and are out there in the world for the public to watch as well. That way you can watch the episodes and then you can listen to Jack and I talk about what stood out to us in the show. And that will be Wednesday next week, November the 9th, when The Crown lands on your Netflix accounts. Um, And I'm excited to have that conversation. Obviously, like you say, we've got to keep tight lit, but I think it's going to be a good chat. And I think also... A lot of those very people who newspapers like The Mail are trying to speak to, they're going to be probably listening to our show and wanting to find out all the latest stuff about it too because it's, you know, it's going to be an interesting thing to talk about. And I would be gobsmacked if the public actually agreed with all of this uh, backlash against The Crown. I think it's a hugely successful TV show and I have a sneaking suspicion that people are going to sit down and watch it and find that they actually do not take home what the male are suggesting is in this uh, season. Um, And I can't say more about that now, but perhaps we can talk about that on Wednesday. Oh, we definitely will. And uh, John Major, Dame Judi Dench, you're welcome to join us as well. So yeah, get back to us. We dropped you an email to invite you to next week's show. Join us if you like. If you're scared to join us, we understand. That's why you won't be here if you're scared. But (laughs) (laughs) there you go. (laughs) And that's it for this week's episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join us every other week when we visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jack Royston. 
Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And a curtsy to you all.